everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to ask, what are you thinking? And this week, we're going to be chatting with Matt from the Zero Pain Philosophy. We will talk about his career in veterinary anaesthesia and all of the amazing benefits of using paracetamol in our small animal patients. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I am one of the founders of VTX and I'm a European and Royal College recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine. I am joined by my friend Karen, uh, who is truly my friend and also our podcast producer. Hello, Karen. Right, so hello, Matt. Thank you so much for um, joining us. I have to start by saying um, a slightly belated happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, tw- 21 <laughs> again. Cool. Um, <laughs> how, how is the aging process treating you okay? I still feel 21. Good. In my head. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And did you have a nice day? Yeah, it's amazing. Thanks. <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, so I just wondered, um, we should start by um, maybe just if you can introduce yourself and um, maybe just talk a little bit about your um, career as a vet. Yeah, so cool. Um, my name is Matt. Um, I left Liverpool wanting to do mixed practice and I went and worked in a quite a mixed practice in Worcestershire and got to deal with everything from cats to tigers and giraffes and some kind of exciting stuff. Um, some fairly routine stuff, um, lots of TB testing, which really, um, yeah, I've done enough TB testing to last me a lifetime. So okay. excited about that. I like being outside. Um, yeah, I really loved the mixed aspect and I was looking to be better at one thing. Being in mixed practice is a massive challenge, I think, from keeping current, keeping up to date and being good at everything is a real challenge. So all credit to those people that can do it. Um, I wanted to really focus on one thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, anesthesia meant that I could do that mm-hmm. because I wasn't quite ready to focus on one or two species at that point. Mm-hmm. And a residency came up at Liverpool, which is where I graduated from a few years before that. And I applied and I didn't think I'd get the job and I got the job. So I feel that I kind of walked into it a little bit easy and then just focused on anaesthesia and pain management from there onwards. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting, I think, with anaesthesia, because it really is the only, correct me if I'm wrong, certainly of the kind of small animal you know, specialties, the only one that kind of crosses both um large and small animal in quite the same way would you say yeah i think so and when i was thinking about the residency and and certainly my experience from being at liverpool is that okay sometimes the cardiologists would come and do a bit with one another and maybe the ophthalmologist there's a bit of a crossover but anesthesia you could be in the small animal hospital in the morning and anesthetizing a colic that evening and throughout the night um just because that's, that was the nature of the job. We did a really busy on-call rotor um, and yeah, lots of equine surgeries in the middle of the night. So. I think, and, and I think I said the same thing to Carl, I think that 
although that is i think it's nice for you to get that variety i i personally would also find that extremely stressful but um credit to you for being able to do that <laughs> i think yeah you kind of go into it a little bit you do it when you're young and you're keen and i think looking back now actually i wouldn't want to do that on a day-to-day -day basis um it's incredibly hard flipping between the two roles but yeah it was fantastic grounding brilliant experience to do mm. and when did you make the decision to be more predominantly small animal then i i went into my residency wanting to do equine anesthesia and i kind of came out the other end with this real interest in pain management and I guess at the time, I finished my residency at a really bad time for the jobs market. It was just when the financial crisis was kind of hitting the universities. And so any idea of staying on at the university, doing anything at that point, um, disappeared. And I looked locally for a job in a, a practice that I'd always respected very highly. And I sent them a letter and said, would you like an anaesthetist? And they said, yes. Mm -hmm. And that was a, it was a predominantly, it was a surgical practice, doing specialist surgical referrals, um, Northwest surgeons. And yeah, I got a job there and yeah, then just got further into local anaesthetics, pain management, um, obviously still doing anaesthesia is my predominant role, but a massive part of that is pain management. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So obviously that leads us nicely into the fact that, um, you are one of the creators or founders of the zero pain philosophy um and i think you know it does i i obviously it does what it says on the tin which is it's a, it's a really great name um but can you just um i suppose bring us up to date with um what you guys are kind of uh, working on just now or projects that you've got in the pipeline yeah, so really one of our main aims with Zero Pain is to give everybody across the globe access to resources with regards to pain management from free videos and free pain updates right through to webinars and courses um, in a whole variety of topics as far as pain management goes. And yeah, so far our, we've had a big focus on, on dogs and cats because that's what Carl and I specialise in. It's just Carl and I that run Zero Pain. Um, that's been our focus so far. We've worked pretty hard over the last six months getting a really good webinar library together. Done some exciting things recently. We were scheduled to go to Thailand um, about this time. Um, this month oh. and we were going to go and do some work with the worldwide veterinary service and their people oh, wow. um and obviously that's all been shelved because of covid but recently i've done i did a couple of webinars last mm -hmm. friday for them um on some of the similar topics that we were going to cover we took we did multimodal analgesia and we also did risks of anesthesia. So we've kind of kicked off a learning program, okay. which will be available on their academy as well, um, trying to help people in a whole variety of, of locations and with a focus there on, on the, the low resource setting, which again, we spend a lot of time mm -hmm. thinking about kind of very developed practices, but it's really good to to think um, with that slightly different hat on. It would it would have been a, a bit nicer to be thinking actually being in Thailand, 
Thailand. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, one of the guys said about um, they they do a lot of amputations in their clinic, and is it teaching epidural? And um, this was a webinar where there was chat. All the attendees could read the chat. And I said, I would have loved to be in, in Thailand teaching you how to do an epidural on some real cases. But um, we're crossing our fingers that next year, the year after, that will that will happen and we will get there. So, yeah, no, that's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to look forward at the moment. So. Yes, you do. You're absolutely right. Um, just just on that note, actually, just uh, Corona, just quickly, I think we have we can't avoid it. Clearly, do you? How do you feel coronavirus has affected your kind of day to day practice? Do you do you feel a, a big impact of that in the clinic? I think coming out of lockdown, we got busy quite quickly, and then we've had a really busy summer. So. I think a lot of people are at home spending time with their pets, maybe looking a little bit closer at their pets and realizing you're not normal, are you? I need to take you to the vet. <laughs> so um, we've all been busy and, and I, I talked yeah. to friends in first opinion practice as well and referral practices and everyone says the same, they're really busy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's people spending more time with their pets. Yeah, definitely. And maybe maybe they've got a bit more disposable income because they're not going on their nice holidays. So. Well, I think I've certainly noticed a lot of um, um, extensions being built around where we are. <laughs> People are definitely spending their money on something on something else. Um, yeah. I actually, I really like. I've I've not thought of it quite like that. Like you know, people are are genuinely just staring at their dogs and cats more, and then just noticing um, maybe the subtleties they would have kind of missed uh, before. When um, as far as kind of the work you do with zero pain. What would you say is like the number one thing that you get asked regarding pain? What's the, what are, you know, the sort of topic where people seem most interested in learning more or doing better? I think there's a real drive. And actually one of the reasons we started it was because we recognise that local anaesthetic techniques are really underused. They're really easy to perform. They're cheap. Um, they're just really underused. But I think it's because people didn't really have the confidence to go actually I can see this in a book. Is this the right technique to do for this surgery? So really what we bring is, as well as trying to teach people the technique is saying, well, actually, this is what I would do if I had a dog that had cruciate disease or a radius non or fracture. This is the block I do. This is how you do it. Here's a, a three minute video. So you can watch that on your phone or on your tablet at work before you do that and hopefully gain more confidence. We, I mean, we recognise that we love teaching on cadaver courses where we have the benefit of using those cadavers and teaching people um, or we're actually working in clinics on live cases. But um, I think a video, if you can't do either of those things, a video is really the way to, to demonstrate that to people. And I think it, and it does actually, it can still work. Like I, I think we just have to get our mind around different ways of teaching. And I think there was a, Correct me if I'm wrong. You you put out a post recently that was great. Maybe was it um, a local local anaesthetic techniques? Maybe in a blocked cat or something. But I remember watching a, a video of yours and um, and thinking actually it tra- it does translate really well. I was um, working on a, a, a was meant to be doing a kind of practical course on a bone marrow, for instance, recently. And you think mm. to yourself, how the heck am I going to teach someone how to do a bone marrow biopsy <clears throat> you know with without being kind of practical about it and again you know so the right video content um with the kind of right help and support and direction actually can work quite well um and i suppose 
coronavirus has just made us think about kind of the way that we we do learning you know in a, in a slightly different way so we just have to find ways around that i suppose um so one of the 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 thing that i was keen to talk to you about today and this is maybe a bit selfish as well because i'm i have actually a lot of these questions are just my own questions um <laughs> I hope that's okay. Um, was to was to talk about paracetamol. Um, the reason paracetamol is really interesting is because, and and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it it definitely has gained hugely in popularity uh, over the last I don't know five years. It's really funny. I think the attitude towards paracetamol has changed um and certainly its use has just you know in some ways skyrocketed it, it would just I, I i think back to when i first graduated and we didn't even have it really in the clinic for some reason and it's it seems a bit mm. mad now that we um that we didn't use it more in the past would you kind of agree with that is that something that you would yeah i've kind of just had a flashback to the practice i started working in and you see stuff on the shelf and you think oh that's really old school who would use that we weren't taught about that Mm -hmm. um and i'm sure pardale v was one of those drugs that was on the shelf and i thought oh i don't know anything about that and you instantly think well because i wasn't taught about it in the past couple of years at vet school it can't be relevant and here i am kind of 15 years later Mm -hmm. saying actually look there's a there's a growing body of evidence for this drug. I think the other thing that's really interesting is there are so many drugs that we have on the shelf, we have used, but we really have very little evidence for how they work. And in our clinical patients, what I want to see is, well, actually in this surgery that I'm going to do, in orthopedic surgery, how effective is that drug if I'm going to use it? Paracetamol is a classic example of that. So what do we know then about the way that paracetamol works in our patients? Well, it's a really interesting drug. And actually, you could say that it's its own multimodal analgesic. If you start, one thing I love doing, I love chasing references. So I like starting with one paper, I go to the reference section, and I find out where people are referenced things. Because, you know, it's like you're training, you're working with a whole load of people, and someone says, well, this does this, and this does this. And you go, yeah, but where are you getting this from? Where is that coming from? Okay, you have to have a lot of time on your hands to be able to sit down or dedicated time to do that. But when you do that with paracetamol, you come across a whole load of literature saying, well, this is how it works, this is how it works, this is how it works. And there are, obviously, from a study point of view, they're only ever going to look at one mechanism per paper. So there's work that shows that the anti-inflammatory effect is weak. And we've always bunged paracetamol into the same boat as the non-steroidals and the more we learn about paracetamol we know that actually it doesn't really work as as an anti-inflammatory but maybe that's dose related and when we get to higher doses so maybe 20 mg per kg is what um, we are gleaning from the literature that we probably have to use these higher doses to get an anti-inflammatory action if you use a serotonin blocker then the analgesic effect of paracetamol is blocked. And there's more evidence that shows that that's part of the, the serotonin noradrenaline system is part of the descending modulatory system. So whereby changing levels of those two compounds has a modulatory effect on how the signal is processed at the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So there's, there are higher centers involved in that as well. So higher centers of the brain and the, and the spinal levels. 
something that everyone's everyone's talking about at the moment is cannabinoid receptors and cannabinoid receptors are important in pain transmission certainly at the level of the dorsal horn of the spinal cord and in rodent models where they take away the, the ability to produce the cannabinoid receptors so knock out mice we know that you don't see the same analgesic effect from paracetamol so there, there are a whole host of studies that say look there are multiple mechanisms by which paracetamol works it's one of those drugs do we know in dogs what the predominant mechanism is um, i don't think we honestly do because we don't have that work I guess where the work is coming from now is, okay, this has been proved, all these mechanisms have been proved in rodent models. We know in people that paracetamol works and where we're pulling our evidence from now are some of the clinical studies that show in dogs, yes, paracetamol is effective in certain circumstances. And we do have some studies recently um, uh, to talk about. As far as kind of what you were explaining there about the different possible mechanisms of action, are there any then specific drugs that you would not give in conjunction with paracetamol because it may downregulate the effect of paracetamol or make it less effective as an analgesic? I don't think so off the top of my head, but there are there are still some I think with a lot of the analgesics we use, if we think probably with regards to chronic pain the most. There are quite a few drugs that we use. We know a bit about those drugs in isolation, but we don't honestly know what the effect of all of those drugs is in combination. Um, so I suppose hand on heart, I can't honestly answer that question. But okay. I suppose your classic one is non-steroidals. I would happily use paracetamol alongside non-steroidals. That is, I mean, I always used to say, oh, because that's what the GP does, they're happy to do that. I've been saying that for the past 10 years, so I have not had a bad experience of using paracetamol and non-steroidals together. Okay. We've got a pilot study from an acute pain setting. So this was dogs having cruciate ligament surgery, they're having a TPLO, where we had a non-steroidal group, we had a group that just got paracetamol. Those dogs, there was another reason why they couldn't have non-steroidals. And then we had a group that got paracetamol and non-steroidals. And we showed the, the morning after, the dogs in the combination group were more comfortable than the other two groups. We got some very early work there and we do have ethics mm -hmm. to take that to a full clinical study. So when we get the, the caseload, um, we will um, start that study. Interesting. So I suppose just maybe to talk through the um, examples of the sort of most common cases where you would be using paracetamol, not only, you know, during an animal's hospital stay, but kind of beyond that as well. Mm -hmm. Sure, I guess any patient that's receiving steroids and can't have a non-steroidal, mm -hmm. um, I think paracetamol is really effective in those circumstances. Cases that they are hospitalised, they may be post-surgical cases or they may be painful for, for as part of their pathology. Those cases where we've given opioids and we might have given something else, maybe a lidocaine infusion, for example, and they're still painful, I like to give those dogs paracetamol. And I think if you go back half an hour, an hour later and look at those dogs again, they're a lot more comfortable. So almost as a rescue analgesic, well, hang on, right, we've done this, we've done this, and the patient is still painful. What do I do now? 
10 to 15 mg per kg of paracetamol IV, I still need to design a study that, um, that puts that in black and white. Just to kind of confirm this, but you're, you're typically using paracetamol in dogs at that kind of 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram. You obviously mentioned higher doses um, potentially having some anti-inflammatory effect. Do you ever increase the dose to 20 milligrams per kilogram? Is that something you would ever do? Yeah, so there's a difference. The way I pitch this is that there's a difference between the IV and the oral dose. Mm-hmm. If you open the BSAVA formulary, it says 10 mg per kg IV or per os TIV. Mm-hmm. Um, no one knows where 10 mg per kg came from. So that's an interesting conversation point. We know that mm-hmm. orally, the dose of paracetamol and pardel is 33 mg per kg. So that's fairly high. Yeah. yeah. Um, some of the very early studies in the 90s there's a study in dogs. It's quite a crude model, but it does give us some information. And that's where the 20 mix per kid came from. So okay. I don't understand that. I mean, that's been in the literature for years. So I don't really understand where the 10 mix per kid came from. I, maybe it's extrapolated from people, but I'm not quite sure that quite works out. 500 divided by 70. So um, IV, I'm using 15 mix per kid based on... A, a recent study that l- they used the bitch spay as their model and they had a group of dogs that got meloxicam or a group that got carprofen or a group that got paracetamol 15 mg per kg IVTID and in that study their outcome measures were um, they, sh- they showed that the paracetamol dogs were as comfortable as the carprofen or the meloxicam dogs. Now, I'm not saying anyone listening to this should not use a non-steroidal for a bitch spay. I think you, your my mantra is any animal in pain should receive a non-steroidal unless you can find a very good reason not to. Um, but if you had a patient that couldn't receive a non-steroidal, by giving them 15 mg per kg paracetamol, they're not going to be any worse off. They, that's the basis of the IV dose. The oral dose, if you pick the Pardale pot off the shelf, you're going to, and you use that at the label dose, it's licensed for five days, you're going to be using 33 mg per kg TID. Now, there's a study that was published earlier this year um, by originally by a group from Bristol, and they looked at that oral dose at 33 mg per kg compared to meloxicam. Um, so the the model there was a cruciate surgery. Oh, was it cruciate? It was orthopedic surgery. Um, it was I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it. I think it was, no, it was surgery in general. So it was you could critique the paper because um, the surgery wasn't uniform. So it was a variety of surgeries, but they used thirty three mg per kg of Pardale two hours before surgery, or meloxicam orally before surgery, and those dogs had a methadone premed. And with their outcome measures, yeah, they showed that they were as comfortable as far as pain scoring goes in both groups. And the rescue analgesia that they used in the postal period was very similar between groups. So they 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 came up with a non-inferiority conclusion that paracetamol mm-hmm. is non-inferior to meloxicam. So I, I suppose there's maybe a bit more to do there to understand dosing a bit a bit better. Um, I think it's really, I think your point about um, it really is a lifesaver as far as, you know, many of the patients that I deal with, um, 
you'll be surprised to know are on steroids and um it's actually very easy to do my job Matt I don't know why anyone struggles um <laughs> it's um so actually for us it's a it's a complete lifesaver because um we are very limited uh if there is any you know uh, when we're dealing with kind of pain management so it really comes into its own I think there there was another sort of situation I was thinking about where um people often struggle with analgesia um and that is with uh, cesarean procedures yeah. um and that's always been a bit of a contentious one and people are, are already losing their minds because cesareans are so stressful uh, anyway um you mean I, I presume you don't see many cesareans in your in your work that you do now <laughs> um thankfully but um do you is there any sort of guide you can give as far as the the use of paracetamol in cases like that um the only thing that i was aware of only because liz was um recently pregnant is actually they do recommend again correct me if i'm wrong that pregnant women can take paracetamol mm. um and pr pretty much nothing else i don't think um i presume the study's not there to say whether or not but is it a drug that we potentially can feel comfortable using in uh, procedures like cesareans or or not it's definitely a drug that I recommend in with the protocol that, that I would advise. And that is written. I, I did a review. One of our pain updates is a review on what is in the literature with regards to cesareans. So there, were, there are two pieces of literature. There is an in-practice article written by Sheila Robertson, who was at the University of Florida for a number of years. She's originally Scottish. And Ian Self, uh, when Ian was at North um, he's now at Cambridge. Um, he wrote something in Companion Animal. And what I did is I took both of those um, those reviews and I pulled um, the bits out of them with their recommendations. So interestingly, there's, there's this real worry about using opioids in those cases. I know buprenorphine specifically says on the license, do not use it in, on the data sheet, do not use it in cesareans. Um, methadone does not say that. Um, so I, I would pre-med with methadone. I know some people are really cautious about using methadone in the pre-med for a bitch spay. But I would use 0 0.1, 0 0.2 mg per kg IM or IV. This is where your local anesthesia is really useful. A line block gets you such a long way. It's so simple. You can be rushing. You can be stressed as the cesarean. A line block takes you two minutes to do. There's a video on zero pain how to do it. Then um, induction with... I, Personally, I would use alfaxalone if I, sorry, I, I do the induction of anesthesia before the line block, just throw that in. Okay. Um, I personally use alfaxalone, and again, that's something I review in that, um, that pain update. And then um, I would use paracetamol, yeah. Yeah, okay. Because I think, yeah, I think all round it does, that kind of causes mm. people a bit of um, um, stress. What kind of situations are you using paracetamol more chronically um, so in, I don't know whether you do you do kind of chronic pain clinics is that kind of part of what you what you do yeah so I run a chronic, a chronic pain clinic at Anderson Moores and I I have used paracetamol for a number of years in a chronic setting quite a few of my cases come to me already receiving paracetamol 
And I guess a lot of the cases I see, maybe they can't receive a non-steroidal or they've had a non-steroidal and something else. And then it's a, well, where do we go from here kind of approach. Mm -hmm. So um, it's kind of going back to what I said before about being in practice, in mixed practice, trying to do everything. Um, There's only so much you know about everything. And I think a lot of those cases that I see have kind of got to somebody's limit and go, right, actually now we need to see someone who deals with this on a day-to-day basis. So paracetamol definitely does form um, a, a fair part of, uh, of a pain management protocol for me. And what kind of, what, what kind of, like an example of the kind of cases, are we talking kind of arthritic type cases generally i would say 70 to 80 percent of the cases i see are arthritis and Mm. the rest of them are neuropathic pain either from um spinal disease or um cancer pain Mm. so some of those cases that can't have non-steroidals because of other medication they're on or because of comorbidities or because of previous reactions paracetamol is a great option there um, there are there are quite a few other drugs that I consider. If you said to me, right, you can only have three drugs, then I would consider drugs such as amantadine or memantine before prescribing paracetamol. But how I often use paracetamol is as something to have at home as a rescue. So let's yeah. say, okay, we work really hard to picking arthritis for example we work really hard to manage our patients our pets exercise so exercise restriction and then controlled exercise things like physiotherapy hydrotherapy this is all part of it but if the dog's having a bad day you need something else that you can do at home and a three-day course of paracetamol is a really useful rescue so it's saturday night something happened the dog um, chase the squirrel in the garden they hurt themselves you don't want to go to the emergency vet I want my clients to have something that they can do at home to improve comfort in those circumstances so again that's quite a nice way um, to use paracetamol yeah. a nice thing to think about one of the situations and this is this is this is my question so and um, one of the situations where um it's still slightly content I don't know if contentious is the right word but Obviously, we know that paracetamol given at inappropriately high doses, we can see a dose dependent um, liver toxicity. And I think that's quite well uh, uh, recognised. I um, do always wonder about um, the use of paracetamol when we're dealing with patients that have liver disease. Um, And this is maybe not patients that we know are in liver failure and and probably we have to be very careful with the drugs we use so but kind of general um increases in liver enzymes not resulting in actual dysfunction of the liver um but clearly there is still an inflammatory infectious uh, process affecting the liver do you worry about using paracetamol in those cases i'm quite cautious with using paracetamol in liver disease personally however i see okay Over a number of years, I've seen a lot of colleagues use paracetamol in liver disease. Okay, is it a bit of a, it's a bit of a blunt indicator, isn't it? Oh, I pushed that dog into liver failure. That's a pretty bad day at the office. So um, I'm I'm really cautious and I often think there are other things that we should think. When when we've got a drug that we know at, let's say we have 100 mg per kg, that's the, the toxic dose I have in my head. 
that would be a patient with a normal liver. I don't know how a dog with whatever degree of liver dysfunction, how it's going to affect the metabolism of that drug. And I don't really want to be the person that gets the phone call from the referring vet and saying, oh, this dog was fine last week and they're totally yellow this week. So um, we have other options. Let's yeah. let's put it that way. Okay. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, I think that's, a, that's actually a really good point. And, and there's just so much that we don't, I suppose, know about so many of these drugs and how they interact. But mm -hmm. And also, I think it was an interesting thing that you said, how they interact together, because we're using you know so many varieties of combinations of drugs as well um that are maybe sort of metabolized in slightly different ways and so it's it is i think sometimes hard to kind of um you know predict that where do you think where do you think although we've said paracetamol is on the up and i mm. I, I, I presume you think that's a good thing um yeah. where do you think we don't use it enough where, where is is there a gap somewhere where we're we're not taking kind of full advantage of um of the paracetamol i would say for acute surgical pain i don't think we use it enough um we we use it a fair amount on a day-to-day -day basis i'm just trying to think um i used it today in a dog that was having a laryngeal tie back mm -hmm. that was on steroids so that dog received paracetamol i think there would be plenty of practices around the country around the world that would probably say well actually it can't have a non-steroid because it's on steroids we're just going to give opioids and then we run into giving that dog quite high doses of opioids the last thing we want is to give a dog that we think is painful more opioids, make them regurgitate or have some of those opioid adverse effects. When you give a drug like paracetamol and it doesn't really have any, it doesn't sedate dogs, it doesn't make them regurgitate, it doesn't do any of these um, horrible things that could then run us into to further trouble. So um, I think it's, a, it's quite a, as far as adverse effect profile goes from hospitalized dogs, if we back away from thinking about the liver side of things, it's actually a really nice drug in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we're looking for drugs that don't sedate our patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the sedation thing is, 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 is a funny thing. We, we spoke about this a little bit with, with Haley Karen, I think is, as well with, was actually that it's, it's a, there's a weird mentality sometimes I think that people will, um, have funny attitudes to kind of the way that drugs um sedate a patient and um we were even talking about this attitude where um i don't want to give too much analgesia because i want to see how they really are <laughs> just like well they're really painful <laughs> so don't do that that's a terrible thing um and i think that's we were talking about that's we the feeling was that was quite an old-fashioned attitude but actually some of that still kind of creeps in um but i think you're right i think the other thing is that from my point of view we do sometimes overly consistently keep patients on higher doses of opioids when they don't always need it and actually we just run into all of these other things that you're saying we we, we maybe underestimate the fact that they're you know the reason they're not eating and continuing to regurgitate is because actually we've just shut their guts down completely or you know so i think you know there's there's other it's a it's a good balance and i think paracetamol then um, really comes into its own again and I, I was going to say the other uh, benefit of it for those of you know for people listening all around the world depending on your availability of drugs it's not a difficult drug to get a hold of and 
it's also not very expensive, which is obviously um, of benefit for sure. It's really interesting because I spent the last 15 years telling people you should use opioids. And now mm -hmm. I'm saying to people, you need to think how you use opioids because we have other options. And it's easy to say when you, when you don't understand what those other options are, I understand that that's quite an awkward place to be. There's been this big drive at the moment coming from the States for opioid-free anesthesia, which I, I am not on board with. I think we, opioids are fantastic drugs and we need to use opioids in our patients. And they're really, okay, big doses of opioids can cause regurgitation, they can cause panting, um, they cause sedation. We don't like those things. But we have some pretty nice opioids in the UK. They don't make our patients sick. It's not like hydromorphone or oxymorphone they have in the States that they give the drug and the dog's sick all over the prep room floor. Um, methadone, fentanyl are really nice opioids to use. Um, so I don't think we need to worry about this, that we need to be opioid free, but we can use lower doses of opioids and we can still keep our patients comfortable with some other options. And paracetamol is one of those examples. What's the reason for the opioid free movement? I've, I've, I've not heard, heard of that. What is, what's the reason um, for that? It really, it comes from human anesthesia and the risk of people. So the worst thing that could happen to us as a person is we go into hospital, we've never had an opioid before, we come out of hospital addicted to opioids. And this has happened across the states. There's the whole, um, yeah, what's, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the name. Is it, it's oxycodone, isn't it? People getting into oxycodone and these big pharma companies pushing um, GPs to sell um, opioids and people becoming addicted. There's been that kind of spillover effect. And some opioids have become quite hard to purchase for, for genuine veterinary use in the states. So, yeah, okay, there's the supply issue. Um, but I think there's just a bit of, it's not really scaremongering, but actually because people get addicted to opioids, it doesn't mean dogs and cats are going to get addicted to opioids. So there really isn't that addiction driver to, to make us use fewer opioids. I don't know if they're worried about having opioids in their clinic and people having, yeah. I don't know. It's actually it's interesting actually because it's 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 very different. The kind of profile of uh, drug abuse and drug addiction is actually very different in the states, isn't it, than mm -hmm. it is here? You know, so the things that people and they 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 have this op opioid you know sort of epidemic they talk yeah. about, and it, yeah, it's it's quite you know, and and I know that there obviously there are drug problems in the UK, but actually it's an interesting sort of difference. So maybe there is a kind of overall just a difference in kind of attitude mm -hmm. uh, to these drugs. Um. I had another couple of questions I wanted to ask you if that was okay. Um, uh, you can feel free not to answer. Um, I was, we've, we've been asking people and I'm interested um, to ask you who in the veterinary profession inspires you. You have to say your husband. <laughs> Carl is very inspiring. <laughs> Did he say me? Yeah. Uh, that's really awkward. I don't think he did, but <laughs> I don't think we were asking that at that stage. So you're, oh, like you're, you're um... backpedaling out of that one. <laughs> yeah. Is there anyone that you are inspired by? Oh, can I say two people? Oh, once I start, I'm going to carry on saying all the people I really love. <laughs> no, dish out the love. Yeah. I think one person 
um, who I have a huge amount of respect for is Polly Taylor, mm -hmm. who will have taught a lot of people at Cambridge and then subsequently worked at the Animal Health Trust. I think Polly's desperately trying to retire. Every time I speak to her, I say, Polly, have you retired yet? And she's not managed to, to retire. Mm -hmm. um, but she, she has done so much work on opioids in dogs and cats. And I think we, we, we turn up at work we pick these drugs off the shelf, we don't recognize or don't know all of the work that's gone into that and who those people were mm -hmm. um, that, that did all that work. Um, so yeah, Polly's one of those people that right from the start, she's really been pushing the agenda on analgesics and, and actually what are, how do we use opioids in dogs and cats? Mm -hmm. So back in, I think it was 1976, Polly and John Holton did some some of the really early work with both morphine and buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. So we learned a lot of lessons um, from, from their, their work. And they were the first people, they were the pioneers saying, well, actually, we've got this drug, we're gonna use it in a dog. Okay, let's, let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then you fast forward 40 years mm -hmm. and see that buprenorphine is licensed in a whole variety um, of, it's licensed in dogs, cats, horses, and uh, I'm sure there are other species that we use buprenorphine in, so. Yeah, Polly's one of those great, great um, inspirations for me. Did you say, was there another or are you going to stick to one? That's a good one. I was going to say Alex Dugdale, who was okay. my, Alex told me at Liverpool and then she was my residency supervisor for the first part of my residency. And it was a real honour. Well, it's probably about three years ago that Alex said, um, would I, both myself and Carl, would we be part of the editorial team updating her textbook? Mm -hmm. um, so it was great to be involved in rewriting those chapters and then to see that book in print. I've actually got one on my desk next That's to cool. me. Um, I can I can tell the, the listeners, I can assure them that the book is real. I've just seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really exciting to see that you know like I, I um yeah I think that's very very cool to have your name in lights in a kind of veterinary way is, is always um is always nice yeah and I think doing doing that with someone that you have always had a lot of respect for um that's that's really cool if you were to have your um time again would you do your veterinary degree or would you do something different it's really hard to imagine doing something different. I kind of rapidly dismiss being a doctor fairly early on. Um, I do I do like people. I know I'm an anaesthetist. I don't want to be a doctor. I'm an anaesthetist. I don't deal with people. I do deal with people. Um, I do like people. Um, I wanted to be an airline pilot, and I'm not quite sure why I didn't move further down that path. I, I think I spent time on my uncle's farm in Devon, and I saw practice with the local vets, and, that, and then I just got carried away with, actually, yeah, this is really, I really enjoy doing this. Obviously, you're, you've been super successful, and you are an FRCVS. I forgot to mention that. I feel like we're in the presence of royalty that's good well done um where do you kind of see yourself in five years time what's the what are the goals for you do you think i where do i i never normally pause when people ask me that question i say oh yeah this is definitely what i do i i i would like to be doing a similar thing to what i'm doing now i feel i'm in a role where i have a decent amount of freedom to do what i want which I think is really important. 
and that does allow you to push the boundaries in a way as far as the whole if we're thinking about pain clinics and pain management so that's a really good thing about my role so I guess it's picking the really good bits and saying well actually I still want the good bits in five years um I like the freedom to develop the pain clinic and I think there's there's still a long way to go with that I'm working a lot with our physiotherapy team because it's not just about me it's about a whole the the owners pet owners those dogs in pain they need that whole holistic approach um I really like doing my bits of clinical research so I've got several research projects actually that was why I was racing home tonight because I had two two owners to phone to recruit to two different studies um yeah so I, I love doing that because unless I get out there and do that and encourage other people to do that we don't have this new information so we're sat here going oh well we don't know a lot about this drug we don't know a lot about this condition actually we, we need to to cut that ground ourselves and do those studies Thank you so much to everyone for listening. We really appreciate all of the support. If you are on social media, then do pop on to our social media platforms and give us a like, follow and share. To find out more about VTX, visit our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. And we'll put lots of information about the zero pain philosophy in the show notes. So do please check those out. Thank you again for listening and we will see you next week.